Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. Uh, that was the band Sure Sure. This must be the place, if that sounds familiar. That's Talking Heads. Uh, love that band. All right. Standing by to join us is Anna LaPay. She's a national best-selling author, internationally recognized expert on food systems, and she's the director of Real Food Media. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show Anna LaPay. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to call in. I know you're really busy. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So let's start off by, I want to ask you how you got involved in doing what you're doing, because a lot of times there's a really interesting backstory. (laughs) Yeah, well, in many ways, my interest in food goes back to my earliest childhood memories. My mom is uh, Frances Morlapay. She wrote a book called Diet for a Small Planet that came out two years before I was born, wow. went on to sell three and a half million copies, and for many people, it's sort of the, the vegetarian Bible and then really a handbook about the root causes of hunger. Mm-hmm. So very much growing up with her as my mother, I was sort of steeped in these conversations about food, and you know, for me, my early childhood memories were not vacations to Disneyland. <laughs> they were research trips with my mom to visit factory farms and meet with farm workers. And so early on, I had this really interesting vantage point into the story of our food. Uh, but it really didn't hit me personally until I was in my 20s and she and I started writing a book together and we traveled the globe seeking out solution stories. And, and that was really where I got so inspired to make this my life's work. You know, that is so unique and so interesting because I'm sure you didn't have very many friends who had childhoods like that. No, that's right. I didn't. I was sometimes the oddball in the cafeteria with the, you know, funky bread and, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, not the Twinkie. But, you know, some people have asked me over the course of my life, as I've really gotten deeper into this work around looking at the story of our food and and how do we make sure that more people have access to good, healthy food and make sure that more of our food is healthy, some people have said, well, you know, did you did you ever feel the need to rebel against yes. you know the work of your your mother and right. my, my father also in many ways is involved in this work and as far as I see it I feel like there's plenty of things to rebel against in this world I didn't need to rebel against the politics of my mother uh, so I feel instead actually it's a huge honor to be able to really in many ways carry on the work that she's been doing for decades that is amazing because I was thinking hmm I wonder if she ever wanted to run out and get a bacon double cheeseburger. <laughs> well, I will say, I will say, I definitely had my fair share as a as a teenager and young adult. I mean, I I definitely, as I said, in my twenties, I kind of came around to to thinking about my own relationship to food differently, and, and that really came out of this experience of traveling the world and, and really seeing the global impact of what we do here in this country. You know, I'll never forget being uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas, going to meet with folks who'd never met anybody from the United States before, and yet, you know, finding myself wow. in these villages where it was easier to get a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola than it was to find drinkable water, and realizing, of course, that the kinds of illnesses that come along with heavy sugary drink yes. consumption, whether it's tooth decay or diabetes, you know, these are hard things for people who have great healthcare systems, and imagine how devastating for people who, you know, live in rural India. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was really powerful to see just how much our food brands uh, and the kind of policies around food that we are steeped in here are really impacting the world. I have to share something with you. I grew up in New York City, and I ate so much junk food, and I tell my own kids I was really depressed, and I didn't mm. do well in school. 
And I didn't realize till later on, until I cleaned up my act, and I am a vegetarian, what a huge impact eating all these toxic things did to me. Sure. And it's, it's, it's all around us, of course, right? Yeah. And I feel like that's something I really stress. I definitely, uh, I definitely don't consider myself a finger-wagging, you know, you should eat this and you should feel guilty that right. <laughs> this is your diet, right? It's the default. And it's, you know, again, I, I tell my own story often that here I was, you know, being raised by a, a woman who was, uh, you know, steeped in this work. My, my father was a toxicologist, worked a lot on toxics, mm-hmm. not just in food. And when I was a graduate student, you know, I think back on, on my diet, and it was probably what most graduate students would, you'd imagine we, I would be eating, you know, ramen noodles mm-hmm. and, and uh, bagels and, you know, bagels for breakfast. Right. And, uh, and frankly, a lot of sugary drinks, right. uh, vitamin water, adwala, you know, all, Snapple. Yes. I was spending so much money on sugary drinks, and I really took kind of a, a wake-up call. I was actually dating uh, a man from France who was appalled at, at the American uh, drink <laughs> habits and said, you know, why do you drink anything but espresso, water, and wine? <laughs> um, but I started thinking about just actually p- stopped. Mm-hmm. So wait a second. What am I drinking? I realized, in retrospect, I was consuming about twice as many grams of sugar as is recommended as a very maximum we consume per day just in those drinks I was buying. Right. So let me just share, share something with you. The name of my show yeah. is Get the Funk Out. And <laughs> I'm always fascinated with, uh, you know, w- how people go through these ups and downs of life. And I can definitely see whether it was you or someone else, you know, we, we don't think that our food is going to bring us into a deep, dark funk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think... Also, what we find, I mean, I'll just personally remember making that one <clears throat> decision and that one choice when I was a graduate student, and I remember thinking, well, but this is, you know, who I am. I mean, I was drinking Diet Pepsis and Diet Cokes and, again, all of these right. sugary drinks, and I thought, well, this is how I have the energy to study so late at night, and this is what gives me my spunky personality, and <laughs> you know, it was part of my identity, right. and... <clears throat> And I have to say, I was afraid to go cold turkey. And yet when I did, it was so much easier than I ever thought it would be. And for me, a huge impetus behind it was not just this, you know, aghast uh, uh, French uh, boyfriend of mine, but it was also, frankly, seeing the role that these sugary drinks companies were playing in the world and knowing that for every dollar I spent, say, on an Edwalla that's owned by Coke or, you know, on a Diet Coke, for, for every dollar I was spending, only a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of that was going to the actual raw products that went into those drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the vast majority of it was going to Coca-Cola's $4 or $5 billion marketing budget. Incredible. <laughs> and I was wow. thinking to myself, you know, I have, I'm a graduate student. I don't have that much money, and I'm, I'm using my hard-earned money right. to basically push these products yeah. around the world. It didn't sit right with me, and that was a part of it. It wasn't just for my own health. It was really this the feeling like I didn't want to participate in uh, in a system that would be spreading these brands, uh, no, you know, all sense. around the world. Makes sense. So how did you decide to form Real Food Media? Yeah, so Real Food Media is a collaborative initiative I run with partners around the country. And I decided to start it because for about a decade after I wrote that first book, I wrote two more books, and I would travel a lot around the country to give talks. Mm 
mm-hmm. to audiences that ranged from college university campuses to uh, community food co-ops to I, I emceed an auction at Sotheby's on food uh, to benefit a food uh, organization. So really a wide range of events. And what I found is that I kept hearing the same questions about the topics I was talking about, questions like, well, Anna, don't we really need to use chemicals in agriculture to feed the world? Or, well, Anna, you know, is organic food really really better for us, or, or is it not? Interesting. Uh, a, a whole set of questions yeah. that were repeated no matter who the audience was I was speaking to. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of research on how the food industry messages its story, not just by our product, but these kind of bigger narratives Mm -hmm. about food. And I was struck that the questions I was hearing from my audiences were almost verbatim the talking points from those food industry messaging campaigns. And it dawned on me that that was not a coincidence, uh, that uh, further research that colleagues and I have done have shown the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent every year by the food industry to shape these broader narratives that we have about our food system. And I wanted to, in my own, albeit modest way, with Real Food Media, Mm -hmm. I wanted to give people a forum for learning about other ways of thinking about food and, frankly, to expose that public relations spin that the food industry engages in. And so Real Food Media has a food myth-busting arm. We've created these myth-busting videos people can watch online. We started an international short films competition so people could share their own stories on film. We've done a lot of different things all about really trying to elevate the real story of our food. I saw that. I was going to ask you if you want to talk about the film festival. It looks really interesting. Yeah, so we ran this film festival for three years. We did an open call for entries for films under four minutes on food, farming, and sustainability. And when I started it, I remember thinking, what can you really say in under four minutes? And I remember thinking, you know, are we going to get anything, you know, that interesting? I mean, it's not that, you know, watching kale grow is not that fascinating. You know, how are these going to be interesting stories? And I was so inspired and moved by the hundreds of films that were submitted from all around the world, actually. And we uh, have uh, selected each year 10 of the best, and we have encouraged people anywhere in the world to host free pop-up film festivals. More than 300 pop-ups have happened globally. And then we now house all 77 of of what we chose as the best films uh, at our website, realfoodmedia.org. And again, these are films that are Creative Commons licensed, which means anybody anywhere can show them for non-commercial purposes. They've been used in classrooms, at conferences, at other kinds of public events. And uh, they are, each and every one of them, just a really beautiful snapshot about one particular story of food. I would imagine you're so inspiring to even kids when you go in, you know, whether it's kids or college students, because it's never too early to start thinking about this. Absolutely, and and that's exactly what the, the food industry knows. That's why McDonald's have uh, have playgrounds inside some of their facilities, and that's why they started the Happy Meal. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's really because they know that when you get folks early, uh, they become uh, hooked. You know, they be, they become <laughs> customers for life, right? Oh, they yeah. become hooked. Completely. And so, yeah. So, I've been really excited to see the movement around the country of school based 
food programs, bringing gardens back into schools, uh, bringing cooking back into schools. And, you know, when I started doing this work about 15 years ago, there was just a handful of programs that were connecting school districts to local farms. There are now today farm-to-school programs in every single state in the country, and there are uh, an emergence of uh, new cooking programs and gardening programs. There's a fabulous new organization called Food Corps, kind of modeled off of Peace Corps, that brings young people into schools to help uh, create teaching gardens and nutrition education programs. So I'm really encouraged by what I've seen in the last 15 years. There's still obviously so much work to be done, but it is definitely inspiring to see. It's it's a really exciting time thinking about you know everything you're talking about because I love hearing about how kids not only grow their food but then they learn how to incorporate it into their diet. Exactly, and what's really cool is that I have uh, encountered many kids who tell me that because of what they're learning, whether it's in a summer gardening program or a program in their school, they're bringing those lessons back to their parents and uh, and changing their whole family's diets as a result. I love that. I want to mention that uh, you and your mother uh, founded the Small Planet uh, Institute and Fund, which has raised and given away more than $1 million to grassroots organizations worldwide since founding in 2002, and you were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. Oh, well, we weren't awarded. I wish. We weren't awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, but um, two of our core grantees at the Small Planet Fund were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in the years after we we met them. So we like to joke that we, you know, we know how to pick winners (laughs) um, because we have just a few core grantees. And yeah, one of them in particular is uh, one of my all-time heroes, uh, a woman named Dr. Wangari Mathai, who Mm -hmm. uh, was a Kenyan environmentalist, uh, the first, um, one of the first PhDs in biological sciences in East Africa, woman PhDs, and she founded a movement called the Green Belt Movement that became a, a force for uh, tree planting and for uh, bringing back traditional foods in the country of Kenya. And then, yes, she went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Incredible. Wow. So tell me what else you have going on. I know you're going to be at the Natural Products Expo. Yeah, so uh, the Natural Products Expo, uh, this will be my second time going, and to me it's another sign uh, that times are changing, the fact that organizers said they're they're expecting about 80,000 people to go through the halls of the expo over the course of, of wow. the event. And it is really one of the seminal events for folks, especially brands working in the industry, on uh, uh, creating products that are healthier and mm-hmm have more integrity and authenticity. And so I'm giving one of the keynote talks, and and one of the messages I will be bringing to that audience is just how much I'm hearing from consumers around the country that they want to see the food system change. They want to see better, healthier food. They want to see uh, practices like using sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics in animal factory farms eliminated. Uh, They want to see the most toxic pesticides like uh, the neurotoxin uh, chlorpyrifos banned. So there is this huge consumer demand. And I feel some brands are really responding to that and stepping up and standing shoulder to shoulder with consumers. But I think more brands really need to realize that it's time for them to also be on the right side of history and, and really be 
see themselves as partners with this movement of consumers that are demanding real change. I have to say, I only eat organic, and uh, mm-hmm. I also I have a daughter that has issues with asthma, and I've had eczema, and I feel like I don't want to put more stuff in my body that's poison. I mean, that's to me, it's just simple. I mean, I know it's more money, but I make choices, you know, pretty much going organic when I can. Yeah, well, that's fabulous, and and you know, you're not alone in that. Every single across every demographic, across every age, there is growing demand. You probably know the figures better than I about the the double-digit growth in uh, organic uh, food consumption. Uh, And you also probably know the demand for organic is actually outstripping U.S. supply. So one of my arguments is that we're actually, by by having federal policy that does not incentivize farmers to transition, that does not farmers, does not support farmers in making that choice, that uh, our federal farm policy is actually undermining rural economies. In other countries, in Europe, for instance, there is uh, government support to help farmers make that transition, which, you know, is, is a hard transition. It requires... It requires a lot of a farmer. When they make that transition, I have never met a farmer who regretted transitioning from chemical to non-chemical farming, but it's, it's definitely a leap. And, um, and other countries have, have supported their farmers in making that leap. So, so that's one thing that I, again, I think that the brands that are uh, embracing organic ingredients should also be really thinking about how can they use their muscle mm-hmm. to support the kind of policy that would help their farmers uh, uh, transition and help their farmers grow food without chemicals. What would you say to someone who wants to learn more about this, who wants to you know, change the way they have a relationship with their food, they want to be healthier? Yeah, well, the great thing is there's tons of resources, and I would say start wherever you are and, uh, you know, don't feel like you have to change everything at once uh, and and feel like, you know, I hear this a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey, uh, and, you, you know, you, again, just putting one foot in front of the next is, is absolutely the, the, the only thing one can do, right, is start yeah. that first step. As I said, there's lots of resources. Uh, one of the other things I'd recommend, uh, one of the resources we provide at Real Food Media is uh, I host a monthly podcast called Real Food Reads. And one of the ways that I felt like my relationship with food and my thinking about food has really evolved is through my consumption of books and of having that, that time alone to sit with the page of a book to really ponder big ideas. Um, so you can uh, check that out at Real Food Media to listen to the podcast I, I host, but you can also uh, see the books I recommend reading and uh, read those books on your own. And I also wish, um, want to mention uh, there's some TEDx talks. There was TEDx Berkeley yeah. and TEDx <clears throat> Manhattan. Uh, TEDx Berkeley is the uh, empathy of food. TEDx Manhattan, the dangers of Dora and marketing junk food to kids. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse my little cough here. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know about your listeners, but I have found myself really loving TEDx talks that I've heard. And, and I feel like in both my talks, I think are about 13 minutes, the two you mentioned, the TEDx Berkeley, TEDx Manhattan. And, um, and uh, I hope that those talks also would be, uh, would, be, uh, would be experiences your listeners could have to, again, kind of get, get your, your brain thinking differently about your relationship to food. And in the TEDx Berkeley talk, one of the things I emphasize you know, you mentioned choosing organic for your health, your health of your daughter, you know, what could be more important than those choices. And I talk about how 
that's absolutely right. And that by extension, of course, at the same time, when we are choosing foods grown without toxic chemicals for ourselves, what we're also doing is participating in a set of choices that have really positive implications for people who you'll never meet. You know, you'll never meet the farmer who probably uh, yeah. who grew that organic food that you're bringing into your kitchen for your family. But because you chose organic, that farmer didn't have to uh, risk illness uh, because yes. of the chemicals they were using on their farm. Right. Um, that farm worker, you know, didn't have to risk getting exposed to a neurotoxin or, uh, you know, a chemical that's going to disrupt his or her hormones to put food on your plate. So for me, it's it's this bigger story that you connect to when you make these choices about food. I think that's fantastic. So where can people find out more about you? They can go to realfoodmedia.org to find out more uh, and get in touch with me that way. I, uh, we're always interested in hearing other pe- people's ideas about books we should cover. Uh, we also have at Real Food Media uh, a bunch of different initiatives we're involved in. And, and one of the most exciting ones that anybody anywhere in the country can get connected to is a, um, a new public policy we're part of helping support, which would encourage schools and cities to make more conscientious choices about the food they purchase. It's called the Good Food Purchasing Program, and people can find out more about that and see if their city has already passed it. And if your city hasn't, you can find out how to help make sure your city does pass the policy at a website called goodfoodcities.org. Perfect. Well, this has been great. I want to thank you so much for calling in. Uh, I want to mention your books one more time, uh, Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork, and What You Can Do About It. Uh, Was there another book? And I've also written a book with a fabulous chef named Bryant Terry called Grub, Ideas for an Urban Organic Kitchen. And then the book I mentioned that really set me on my whole life journey uh, that I wrote with my mother, Frances Morlapay, is called Hope's Edge. Hope Sedge. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, and I hope to meet you, Anna. I hope so, too. This was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Anna LePay calling in. She's the director of Real Food Media and the author and co-author of several books. All her information is up on my show blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. We'll take a little break, and then I have another guest calling in. Uh, Daphne de Marneff, she's a PhD. She has a PhD, and it's called The Rough Patch. We're going to talk about her latest book, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Mm-hmm. 